As was mentioned, and as you just saw in the video, we're in a series called Reset. And I was thinking this past week about some things that we reset. So let me ask you, how many of you change the oil in your cars? Raise your hand. I don't mean you change. You get somebody to change it. You know the drill, right? Now, if you don't, you probably have a problem. But every so often, you have to change the oil. And if you're like me, you take it to, some, to someone to change it. That means I have a little sticker on the windshield. I do not obey the sticker because the guys that change the oil cheat. The owner's manual says something like, change the oil every 7,500 miles. You can change every 5,000. But if you go to the oil guy, they want you to come back every 3,000 miles because the more often they change oil, the more money they make. I don't follow the windshield sticker. I don't follow the uh, owner's manual. I follow the car reset button. And here's how it works. When they change the oil, they reset the oil check or whatever it's called button. I don't know how to find that. But I make sure they reset it. And I know to change the oil when the light comes on and says, you should change your oil. Now, you and I don't have reset buttons and we don't need our oil changed. But God has built into our lives kind of a reset button. And he says, once a week, you should gather together to have your hearts and minds reset based on the gospel, the priorities, the values of Jesus. And daily, you should take some time to think about what God wants us to do. Talk to him in prayer daily and weekly. Reminders to reset so that we don't fall prey to just being washed away with the current of our culture. Now, we've been looking at a number of incidents from Genesis 1 through 11, and today we come to an incident from Genesis 11. We're going to look at the Tower of Arrogance. You may know that better as the Tower of Babel. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 11. I did not look at the page number in the seat Bible. You can hopefully figure that out. Start in the beginning. You'll get there pretty quickly. I'm going to read the first nine verses of this semi-strange account and then we're going to kind of walk through, see what the problem is, what God's evaluation is, how God kind of resets what's going on, and hopefully in the process, learn a little bit about what Jesus came to accomplish because they couldn't do it themselves. So here we go, Genesis 11.1. 1. Now the whole world had one language and common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come. Let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make, make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, as that account opens... The people are moving eastward, right? 
We're not exactly sure what direction that is, but eastward in the Bible, at least in early Genesis, is always away from God, away from the presence of God. And these people are, you know, they speak one language and are kind of traveling together. And when you read the account, you kind of say, well, what's the problem? I mean, I read that and think, I don't see a problem, really. They want to stay together. They want to build a city and they want to build a tower. Well, if you're like, I don't like camping. Uh, I'd rather kind of settle down. I don't want to live in a tent, have to pack up regularly to kind of move on. What's the problem with staying together? They're unified. What's the problem with building a city? What's the problem with a tower? Technology, unity. In fact, on the surface of it, it seems like good leadership has been exercised, right? Somebody stood up and said, hey, guys, I got a great idea. Let's stop wandering around and let's stay together. They're unified. The guy casts a vision to establish a city, to build this town. Lots of leadership practices. Well done. God has a problem. God has a problem with what they're doing. Now, let me remind you, it's not a technological problem. It's not that God's opposed to technology. It's not a unity problem. God's for unity. It's a heart problem. The motivations that lie behind what they want is the problem. Well, let's uh, see if we can figure that out. They stop. They want to build a city, build a tower. Um, Here's one problem right on the surface. Disobedience is all over this passage. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 1, we looked at that a number of weeks ago now. Remember God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, increase in number, and look at the next three words. Fill the earth. Go to the edges. What are they doing? They want to stay together in contradiction, in rebellion against what God, God said. I want my image scattered to the edges of the world. They say, no, no, we got a better idea. We'll stay together in one place and not fill the earth. In fact, that principle is so important to God. Right after the flood, he says the same thing to Noah in chapter 9. God blessed them, right? Same command he gave to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. So God says, I want you guys to scatter and fill the earth. Genesis 11, we read, the people say, no, 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 we're going to settle down. We'll stay in one place. We'll centralize and build a tower. But not just that. A couple weeks ago, uh, remember we looked at Cain? Cain murders his brother Abel. Part of the punishment for Cain was that he would be a wanderer. Remember from Genesis 4? You will be a restless wanderer. And so maybe in the back of the minds of these people uh, that are building the tower, maybe they're thinking, yeah, God sentenced us to be wanderers. I'm not going to submit to the sentence. I've got a better idea. We're going to stay in one place. And we're not going to wander. So we got disobedience. We've got the kind of abdication of the sentence. But there's a bigger problem than that. Yeah, here's what the verses say from uh, Genesis 11. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now, what exactly is this tower? Well, it's kind of like a pyramid, but not like the pyramids of Egypt. How many of you ever, you've seen a picture of pyramids of Egypt with sloped sides, right? Smooth. This was not a pyramid like that. This was a ziggurat, not a cigarette. That's something else, right? 
A cigarette will cause cancer. A ziggurat will cause condemnation, <laughs> right? This is a ziggurat. It has step sides coming down, right? Now, the pyramids in Egypt are tombs to glorify former emperors. The ziggurats were not temples. They weren't tombs. There was nothing inside. In fact, they would push all the dirt together. Then they would make you know, bricks and they build the slope sides. The temple of a ziggurat was, ne was next to it. So here's the picture. Led Zeppelin got it right. The ziggurat was a stairway to heaven. Not necessarily for the people to walk up, for the gods to come down. The temple was next to the ziggurat. So the image is the gods would leave their throne, descend the steps, go into the temple, or the people could ascend the steps and get to God. Now that may sound like a semi-reasonable deal for them. Well, they want to connect with God. Yeah, on their terms. Remember, God placed an angel outside the garden and said, you cannot come back into my presence unless you come through me. I will prepare a way or you can't come. Maybe they're saying, heck with that plan. We're going to build a stairway to heaven. We're going to make our own way to God. Or maybe more likely, the ziggurat is a stairway to heaven so they can assault God. Maybe they're saying, this will be our stairway. We will run to the gates of heaven and we will take God out. We're sick and tired of these rules he gives. Who does he think he is telling us how we should live, what we should do? We're either going to try to connect with him or more likely we'll, we're building a siege work to get to God because we're, we don't like his plan. We're going to take him out. Um, Ego, arrogance. Oh yeah, one more thing in that verse, do you see? What's part of the motivation? Yeah, to assault God, but look at this. To make a name for ourselves. This is about reputation, right? There's never been a ziggurat like this. There's never been a city like we're going to build. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to be somebody in our own eyes. We're creating an identity, not according to God's already named them. In chapter 12, God says to Abraham, in that very next chapter, I will make your name great. What happens in chapter 11? They say, we'll make our own name great. We don't need your help. We'll do it ourselves. Huh. Well, can I remind you, Em? Um, the spirit of Babel is alive and well. Do you know anybody that says, heck with God's plan. I'll connect with God however I want. I'll, God doesn't tell me how to. I'll figure it out myself. Or I'm not interested in his plan. I'm opposed to him. Or I'll make my own name. I'll build my own identity. I'll come up with who I am. I'll construct who I am. And I will define success for, for myself. I will say what I want to be. In fact, I'm, doing, I'm going to declare who I am. Nobody else is going to tell me what I am and what I should do. Oh, does that message sound familiar? Babel, America, 2023, same story, right? Make our own way to God. 
We don't care about him. We'll ignore him. We'll make a name for ourselves. We'll define who we want to be, how we're going to do. God doesn't get to do that. I'll do that myself. That's Babel. That's our culture. Same problem. Same problem. Interestingly, um, God assesses the situation, right? There's an assessment here. And you may say, well, God doesn't get to assess. Oh, yes, he does. You don't get a vote on that one. Remember we said uh, all the way back at the beginning, the author has authority and the authority holds people accountable. Um, The Babel account in Genesis 11 is almost a perfectly constructed story. You may have missed this, and you can check it out later. But verse 5, that says this, but God came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. That's the absolute center of the account. The first four verses lead to verse 5. Verses 6 through 8 go from verse 5. Verse 5 is the center. It's all about God's assessment. Now, when you read that, you may be thinking, um, God's kind of called off. Oh, my goodness, I better go check this out. What are, what are those people doing? That's not what it means. It's a metaphor. Here's what it means. God has to stoop down to see this magnificent tower they're building. In fact, the tower on, on the top of which they're going to assault heaven. God's got to bend down to see the microscopic little, oh yeah, that's what they're doing down there. Yeah. Um, that's the point, right? It's a parody. Just like Psalm 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and they come against God. Hey, God laughs, right? God laughs. So they're building this tower to connect with God. Yeah, right. They're building this tower to take God out. He has to bend down and stoop to even see the sucker they're building, right? It's so tiny. They're... Yeah, verse five, the assessment. Now, before we move on from that, um, I hate to tell you that God's not finished assessing and evaluating. So rather than just look at that from Genesis 11, can I read you a few verses from Psalm 139 to let you know this still happens? The print's pretty small back there. I'm going to look up here. Uh, Psalm 139. A long time after Genesis 11. Psalm 139. Still true, tr- true today. Does this make you squirm? You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. The author who has authority still holds us accountable, and he knows everything. Now, there's comfort. I don't mean to scare you with this, but there's comfort in those verses. So when people slander you and misuse you and abuse you and exploit you, and God knows all of that. And it will one day be made right, 
and all will know that it was made right. And God knows every sacrifice you have ever made to serve someone else, to love someone else, to put your preferences aside, to reach out and meet someone else's, to come alongside someone dying to yourself, giving up your time, giving up your money, giving up your end, to serve. God knows every, every bit of that. There's comfort in that, right? No one else may see, God sees. And God knows the reason behind what you've done. Now here's the other side of that sword. God knows every single thing you do and have ever done. And he knows the motivation behind every word, every thought, and every deed. The author is still in the assessment business because he loves us, because he wants us to get in sync with his plan. He's the designer. He knows how life works, and he's assessing. The end of Psalm 39 says, so Lord, test me and try me so that I can live in light of what you're saying, right? And so it's not an assessment that should cause us to cringe. It's an assessment that should cause us to confess and run to him to get in sync with what he's saying. The author has authority. He's still assessing. And accountability happens in a small way here. On the other side, accountability happens in full. Well, we've got a problem in an assessment, yeah, but that's not all we've got. In the story, we also have God's response. Did you notice that? God responds to this, right? And it's not that God somehow is afraid that they're going to kind of win the day if they climb up the ziggurat to get there. I mean, he's not afraid. He's not even thinking, well, if left to themselves, you know. No, God's saying, no. I'm going to confuse their languages. And that is judgment, right? That's punishment. They're coming together, working together to assault God or get to God on their own terms. And God says, no, no, that's not going to work. So there's grace in the judgment, though. Think about it this way. God confuses their languages. He didn't eliminate language. It's going to be harder to communicate now. But he didn't say, you're not going to be able to communicate at all. But so there's grace even in that. God says, no, I'm going to give you time. I'm going to give you time to come to your senses. Oh, yeah, and don't forget this part. What did God say? Scatter and fill the ends of the earth. How does Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel count, end? Languages are confused, so they scatter to the ends of the earth. Yeah. You don't thwart God's plan. I'll let you in know, you know, a little secret. Get in step with it now rather than kind of be forced to get in step with it. His plan will be fulfilled. The question is, are you going to get beat up in the process or not? There's judgment, yes. But there's grace in that. God still allows them to communicate. They're still able to get together. They're still able to accomplish things. They're able, it's more difficult, but they can. And God gives them time. Think of the picture. God stoops down to see their little microscopic tower from which they're going to attack him. God didn't take his foot and smash the tower in the whole city. God said, eh, I'm going to scatter you. You need time. Come to your senses. He gives them time. He gives them grace. He communicates with them. He reveals himself to them so they would get it. God loves them. 
Yeah, there are consequences for their sin. And if left to themselves, they're going to kind of wreck their lives and everything. And so God said, oh, you know what? I'm going to bring judgment, but I'm bringing grace with the judgment. That's in every one of the accounts. We'll talk about that next week a little bit. But I want you to remember this. You can just look at it this way. Genesis 11 is kind of at the beginning of the Bible. See that? Um, there is a reversal in this book. Did you ever realize that? Babel gets reversed. And it's not in Revelation. Babel gets reversed and Luke records it for us. It's in Acts chapter 2. That really weird account that happens on Pentecost. And what happens is something a lot more significant than people hearing languages in their own tongue. That has an echo of Babel, right? Babel in the background, Pentecost in the foreground now. So listen as I read from Acts 2. Now that you have Genesis 11 in your head, right? Check this out. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem after, after Jesus had been died, after Jesus' resurrection. Now, Jesus the ascension, right? It's day of Pentecost. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Kind of sounds familiar, right? When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? And just to make the point clearer, Luke begins to take roll of some of the places the people were from. Just a small list, right? There are a lot more. Here's what he says. Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Pentecost. The reversal of Babel. Well, that raises a question then. What the heck happened between Babel and Pentecost that caused the reversal? If human beings still try to make their own way to God, if human beings still, whether they have the guts to admit it or not, are assaulting God, who does he think he is? You know, we'll just deny that he exists. Well, what's the solution to that? I'll tell you what happens between Babel and Pentecost? Jesus happens. The mission of the Messiah accomplishes what the morons at Babel could not do by themselves. God says, you can't build a tower to me, but I can build a bridge to you. It's not going to be with stones it's not going to be with bricks and it's not going to be with tar. My bridge to you is named Jesus. God's son is the bridge. Jesus accomplishes what they were trying to do at Babel. Jesus reconciles. Now, that raises a question then. 
Oh, so does that mean that we don't have to work? No, we already said that the spirit of Babel is alive. And what, has to, what has to happen to transact that? I'm glad you asked because um, the Bible answers that question. The apostle John, he writes it like this. The first epistle. Here, here's the solution for you and for me. Um, and put yourself into the shoes of those at Babel, into the shoes of, of those at Pentecost, and you figure out the difference. If we claim to be without sin, Genesis 11, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Jump down to verse 10 there. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. What's the verse I didn't read? But if we confess with our mouths, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And on what basis is that bridge built? Oh yeah, John tells us. Next slide. My dear children, I write to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we're in that group, right? If anybody does sin, that's us. We have an advocate. We have a bridge with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And look at verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. What were they trying to do in Genesis 11? They were either trying to get to God to somehow connect with him, or they were trying to assault God and get rid of him so that he can do things their own way. And God says, yeah, that desire's in you to connect. But if we confess our rebellion, rather than continue in it, God has given us a bridge. And the bridge is not a ziggurat in the Middle East. The bridge is Jesus Christ. And that bridge makes it all the way from here to God. What do you do to access the bridge? You admit that you're a sinner. You believe that he's the only bridge of reconciliation. You accept the offer. And you experience what the builders of Babel probably wanted, but they couldn't attain the way, to, the way they were going after it. So what do you say? Let's uh, give up the Babel mentality of doing this ourselves and somehow trying to take the authority out. Acknowledge who he is. Acknowledge our rebellion. Accept the solution. And commit your life to living that, on that bridge and calling others to walk it with you. Babel, Pentecost, Jesus, the link between them. Let's pray. Father, we confess that sometimes the stories in the scripture are pretty weird on first reading. We're not quite sure why they're there and what they mean, but when we read them in light of the whole story, all of a sudden they make sense. Lord, I know I'm speaking uh, 
to myself and to a group of people that understand well the spirit of Babel because we live it. Lord, help us to do the same thing today and this week and for the rest of our lives. Let's trade up that spirit for the spirit of Pentecost, unity, passion, mission that's built on the Messiah who accomplished what the builders in Genesis 11 only dreamed of. We pray in his name. Amen.